In 313 AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, uh, which made Christianity a legal religion in the Roman Empire. Half a century later, though, Constantine's nephew, Julian the Apostate, sought to revive paganism and to undo his uncle's Christian reforms. He revoked the rights and titles and immunities, and immunities of Christians, um, and he ordered the church to repay whatever state revenue it had received. Um, <clears throat> ironically, though, Julian sought to stifle Christianity by making paganism more Christian. He opposed the Christian faith, but he did so with Christian presuppositions, um, not unlike people who oppose the Christian faith today. Specifically, he, he urged pagan priests to emulate and seek to outdo the mercy and charity of the Christians. In a letter to one of those pagan priests, Julian advised the appointment of priests who exhibit love for their gods and love for their neighbors as demonstrated by his cheerful, his sharing cheerfully even from a small store with those in need and his giving willingly thereof and trying to do good to as many men as he is able. Why? Because when the poor are neglected by the pagan priests, the Christians gain ascendancy through their philanthropy. By means of their so-called love feast or hospitality or service of tables, the followers of Christ were leading very many into atheism, which is what he called Christianity. Julian the Apostate was thus one of the most Christ-like rulers to ever exercise political power in opposition to Christ. And notice what he deemed especially threatening to the future of paganism. Christian hospitality. Love feast is what he called it. Is what they called it. And and through the centuries, I think this remains true. Elected officials may may legislate in opposition to the church and repeal tax-exempt benefits or prohibit Christian education, fine Christians, imprison Christians, even execute Christians. But, But even the most repressive governments are ultimately powerless to stop a grassroots movement of Christian hospitality and care for the poor. It's a powerful thing. So over the, over the previous three lectures, I, I've made the case that to the degree that we live hospi- hospitably, we are living along the grain of Scripture, the life of Christ, and the liturgy of the church. Hospitality is at the very heart of the Christian religion. At times, um, at, at all times, through word and sacrament, the Holy Spirit propels us outward extending the love and hospitality of God to others. And I think this dynamic is is powerfully depicted in in the final chapters of the Bible. So, if you'd like to follow along, turn to Revelation 22. We'll start in verse 1. Revelation 22.1 Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, 
flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So, what I want us to notice is the sequence here. The river of the water of life flows from the throne of God, which nourishes the tree of life, which then bears fruit and leaves for the healing of the nations. The river of the water of life, which which represents the blessing of God, flows to the city, through the city, and then out to the world. This is not a new idea. Zechariah tells of a coming day when living water will flow out from Jerusalem to water the earth. Joel tells of a coming day when a fountain will spring forth from the temple to water the surrounding valley. Ezekiel tells of a coming day when a river will flow out from the temple, giving life to everything and causing trees to spring up along its banks. The common imagery there is not a coincidence. These prophets were drawing from the same source material, namely the book of Genesis. The implication was that God's people would one day be restored to their Edenic origins. And the fulfillment of that prophecy is being described here in the book of Revelation. In the beginning, a river flowed from Eden through the garden out to the world. Divine blessing flowed to the garden, through the garden, and out to the world. So when Revelation 22 describes the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God through the city and out to the nations for the healing of the nations, we can see that this has always been the pattern. So we see that the water of life and the tree of life are not merely intended to bless the church. Access to these blessings are restored for all nations, everyone. Divine blessing flows from the throne of God through the church and out to the nations. In other words, what happens in the temple should never stay there. What happens in the temple should never stay in the temple. What happens in the new Jerusalem should never stay in the new Jerusalem. By God's design, whatever happens in the sanctuary ought to be extended to the nations. Divine blessing should never pool within the church. Divine blessing should flow like a river in the wilderness. Thus, if the liturgical life of God's house is marked by hospitality, if our sanctuary lives are marked by hospitality, then our everyday lives ought to be marked by hospitality. The divine hospitality we experience in worship ought to find further expression in our manner of living. See, worship and mission, I already mentioned this, but worship and mission are not merely connected as if they were two separate things that have to be joined by some external yoke. Mission and worship share a more fundamental, inseparable, organic unity. Worship is to mission as a a mother's mouth is to a mother's breast. Whatever nourishes her will ultimately nourish another through her. Whatever she eats, she then feeds to another. So, having been nourished by God, 
we nourish others. Having consumed Christ in the sanctuary, we become Christ in the neighborhood. Jesus offers himself to us, and we take, and we eat, and then we offer ourselves to others. What we experience in the sanctuary ought to serve as a model to be replicated in the world. And this this idea is what St. John Chrysostom called the liturgy after the the liturgy. The table fellowship we enjoy with God trains us to enjoy table fellowship with others. The love and mercy we receive from God trains us to extend love and mercy to others. Our weekly experience in the sanctuary is training us to see the entire world as a sanctuary and every neighbor as another image-bearing child of God. I want to return uh, once again to Romans 12 and Hebrews 13. We, we looked at those two last night. There, there are two more things worth, worth pointing out at this point. Um, so, first, first, notice that um, both Romans 12 and Hebrews 13... Um, the, the passage begins with a call to offer acceptable worship. Same word in both cases, acceptable worship. Romans 12, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And then Hebrews 13, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. In both cases, the call to hospitable living that, that follows is predicated upon proper worship. The call to both Philadelphia and Philoxenia is built upon proper worship. That's essentially what Lecture 3 was about. Now, second, these passages feature two of the longest lists of practical advice in all of Scripture. Meaning, Acceptable worship is the rich soil from which Christian fruit grows. If there is no liturgy after the liturgy, something has gone very wrong with the liturgy. According to to Romans 12 and Hebrews 13, acceptable worship produces discernment, humility, sober judgment, unity, genuine love, purity, marital fidelity, goodness, mutual honor, zeal, joy, patience, perseverance, constancy in prayer, generosity, hospitality, obedience, harmony, and peace. The liturgy after the liturgy includes and involves all of those things. But if we believe that the the climax and the crescendo of the liturgy is in table fellowship with God, if we believe that the Lord's Supper is the zenith of our worship, then we we should expect table fellowship with others to be a primary expression of what acceptable worship is meant to produce in us and through us. But is is hospitality really an an effective mission strategy? Can the hospitality we practice after the liturgy actually bring the kingdom to bear upon the world. Let's consider John 6 as a case study. This is the feeding of the 5,000. 
Okay. Verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Okay, first of all, notice that John's word choice suggests that this is a Eucharistic event. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. Compare that to the institution of the Lord's Supper, Luke 22. And Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body. So th- this event is, in some sense, paradigmatic of our, for our understanding of what is taking place in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. When we feast with Christ, we are feasting with the one who has the power to take our humble offerings and multiply them, to, to bless them and to multiply them. Indeed, when... Look at what Jesus is able to accomplish when a young boy is willing to share his lunch. Jesus takes a humble offering relative to the enormity of the need and he multiplies the offering. The presence of Jesus therefore means that every act of Christian hospitality, no matter how humble, has the potential to bear a disproportionate amount of fruit. In the kingdom of God, it's, it's the tiny mustard seed. It's the small pinch of leaven that ultimately changes the world. Again, I, I'm convinced that if, if every Christian household were to regularly be feasting with neighbors, especially with the needy, we would not need to pray for evangelistic opportunities. We would be flooded with them. Nor nor would our churches need to rethink our missional strategies in response to every wind of culture. Mission could be as simple as sending an invite, cooking a meal and giving thanks and extending love and welcome and the fellowship of God. This also relieves us of the pressure to have an answer for every objection to the faith. In the words of Esther Meek, hospitality can end-run even the need for apologetics. There is, of course, a time and place for explaining and defending Christian truth, but anybody can say to a neighbor, come over for dinner, and by that mean, taste and see that the Lord is good. At its core, evangelism is an invitation to a feast. 
Are we familiar with the Benedict option? Okay. Uh, a, a few years ago, Rod Dreher published the Benedict option as, quote, a strategy for Christians in a post-Christian nation. He draws on the life of St. Benedict. Um, as the Roman Empire was falling into decline, Benedict took to forming monastic communities, communities of monks, in order to preserve a distinctly Christian sub- or counterculture. So for for Dreyer, a wise path for Christians in post-Christian nations is to embrace their exile and to direct their energies toward constructing a resilient counterculture, strengthening family and communal ties, creating an alternative education system, establishing a degree of economic autonomy, preserving essential Christian doctrines and values through what Dreyer anticipates to be a coming dark age. But for Dreyer's critics, the Benedict option is overly pessimistic and fatalistic. Their concern is that Dreyer's posture is fundamentally defensive and isolationist and therefore anti-missional. I believe both Dreyer and his critics are advocating for something important and true. As the post-Christian world continues its decline, the church must cultivate a distinctly Christian alternative culture. But we, we must not cultivate this alternative culture at the expense or to the neglect of those outside the walls of the church. To use those, those Greek words again, we cannot prioritize Philadelphia over Philoxenia. We cannot love the brethren and ignore the stranger. So you, you probably know where I'm going with this. Um, but yeah, I, I believe hospitality can bridge the gap between Dreyer and his critics. At the table, deep discipleship, Christian alternative culture, evangelism, and mercy ministry can all be pursued simultaneously. And when when practiced in a holistic manner like this, hospitality can foster a tight-knit yet permeable Christian community. High walls, but also wide gates. Churches with hospitable cultures can capture many of the benefits of the Benedict Option while simultaneously maintaining that that outward-facing posture that Dreyer's critics are insisting upon. Not only that, but mobilizing the church to to live hospitably is is a really it's really a simple and sustainable ministry strategy that does not necessitate a ton of paid staff and and church-owned facilities and programming. That will likely become more and more important for churches in post-Christian nations. So, as as simple and hopefully compelling um, as such a vision may be, as a society, we are out of practice with how to live this way. And so, how can how can we begin to cultivate regular rhythms of Christian hospitality in our households? I have a few practical suggestions. All right. Um, number one is put your house in order. What does it mean to get your house ready 
for hospitality. To be sure, cleanliness is a key factor. Uh, Most people find it difficult to relax when surrounded by clutter and chaos. But beyond the, the literal cleaning of your household, we need to put our households in order. Biblical order. First, this requires that we as men must put ourselves in order. We must each be actively pursuing Christian maturity, including prayer and Sabbath and discipline and Bible knowledge and wisdom and hard work and spiritual and emotional maturity. Our thoughts and emotions must be mature. If we desire to speak the truth with our neighbors, we must be learning to love and to put away all falsehood, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander. It's from Ephesians 4. Unless you plan to offer milk to your guests, you must be mature enough for solid food. And solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers discerned by their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Hebrews 5. So we need to prepare our hearts as much as our homes, if not more so. Second, when applicable, we must put our marriages in order. Whether your marriage is healthy or unhealthy, biblical or unbiblical, It refers to Christ and the church. It's always referring to Christ and the church. Your marriage is always preaching. The question is, what what gospel is your marriage conveying? Are you loving your wives and disciplining your children with self-sacrificing respectability and gentleness? Do your wives actually believe the Bible when it says that their gentle and quiet spirit is unfadingly beautiful and precious in the sight of God. If you're going to open your home to your non-Christian neighbors, it's, it's imperative that you have a healthy biblical marriage. And when you have it, it will be a fitting and compelling complement to your hospitality. Third, under... Um, putting our homes in order, we we must put our parenting in order. Obviously, we should not expect to have perfectly behaved children. And in fact, I I think you can bless your guests by demonstrating uh, godly discipline in the context of hospitality. But Christian children do need to know that, that obedience is a biblical command. For our hospitality to be a blessing it, it takes more than just a well-prepared meal. We, we live in a confused and chaotic world, so our households need to be characterized by love and peace and order, not, not by frenzy and frustration. Proverbs 17.1 says, Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. So as you open your home, Consider, consider. we mentioned this last night, but consider including your children. Teach them what you're doing and why. If you view your children as impediments to hospitality, they're going to grow to resent it. 
But when you, when you help them to participate, it becomes, it truly does become a discipleship opportunity for them. Pray for your neighbors with them. Take them with you when, you when you cross the street to extend that invitation. Allow them to help with the cooking and the cleaning. Or make them help with the cooking and cleaning, probably. Um, have them pray at the table. Engage them in conversation around the table. Encourage them to ask thoughtful questions of your neighbors. All right, number two. Be hospitable together. I mean this, I mean this in two different senses. In the first sense, hospitality should begin in the sanctuary on the Lord's Day. The church community, when gathered for worship, ought to be a hospitable place, hospitable toward outsiders and visitors who are coming through the doors. We could talk a lot about this. I'm I'm not going to do that. But the degree to which a congregation welcomes the stranger on Sunday morning directly impacts that person's experience of God's God's welcome to them. So we, we must be hospitable. You must be hospitable in this room. In a second sense, I think it's wise to practice hospitality as a team within the church. When, when multiple households within a single congregation are routinely extending costly forms of welcome to the needy, mutual support becomes necessary for the sake of health and sustainability. So perhaps you could begin by, by organizing a loose network of households in your church who are willing to bear one another's burdens to this end to share the work, to to, to even maybe share the financial cost when applicable for costly forms of hospitality. Number three, know your neighbors. Wherever you are, the Lord has planted you there, and it's there that he desires to see you bearing fruit among your your literal neighbors, the people who live near you. For many of us, the, the first step will simply be to learn their names. And that's, if you've been living by them for a long time, that is very weird. Um, but during this initial conversation, there, there's no need to invite them to church or to force a gospel presentation on them. If, if, you're, if you're a gifted evangelist and you can navigate that naturally, by all means, go for it. But, but if you're rooted in your neighborhood, there's really no rush. People can tell when you have an agenda. Having learned their names, pray for them. Learn their stories and their needs. Keep keep notes and follow up with them. If you see them seldomly, consider spending more time in your front yard. If you don't live in a house, consider spending more time in those common spaces. Number four is lay glad tables. Lay glad tables. Knowing your neighbors is an essential first step, um, but eventually the hope is to actually share meals with them. Most people are deeply hungry for this type of fellowship, even those who initially decline your invitation. Keep in mind that the the most... the, The important thing is not... The food per se. Good food is a wonderful gift from God, but, but feasting is not 
It's not just about food. It's about so much more than food. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. One can have an extravagant meal without truly feasting. Because feasting is about fellowship. Feasting is about people. The secret ingredient is love, as they say, as every grandmother ever has said. So providing a meal does not require a gourmet chef any more than opening your home requires an interior designer. The most important thing is that we offer ourselves with gladness. Um, Have you all seen Babette's Feast? You should. Um, That's an example, a, a cinematic example of a gourmet chef Um, laying out a feast for people. Um, On the other end of the spectrum from that, I I think of that scene from Hook. Have you all seen Hook? Where the the lost boys feast on nothing. Um, It's it's a truly glad table. That is a glad table. There's nothing on it. Um, The food itself is important, but it's not as important as the people. The most important thing is that we offer ourselves with gladness. Offer good food. Offer good drink. But as you do, um, offer them with what they're actually most hungry for. And that's just your full and glad attention. Listen to them generously. Learn their stories and just put Christian joy on display for them. Number five is to keep hospitable time. Keep hospitable time. The Christian year, also known as the the church or liturgical calendar, can be a powerful tool for establishing meaningful, hospitable rhythms. Um, I think it's inevitable that, that the manner in which we keep time will guide and determine the manner in which we spend it. The Christian year is designed to shape our lives in accordance with the story of the gospel such that we begin to keep time Christianly. Through all of our fasting and feasting, our lives begin to mirror the life of Christ. Um, At our church, we we schedule church-wide potluck feasts based on the particular season of the Christian year. Um, We have a world mission feast coming up. Uh, We have an Easter feast. I call it an I call it the Easter Feaster. Um, You're welcome to steal that if you'd like. Uh, We have a Trinity Feast. We have an All Saints Feast. But but even even seasons of fasting uh, can be leveraged for hospitality. Perhaps you could could pool your resources during the season of Lent and, and host a lavish feast for the poor during Easter time. There's plenty of room for creativity there. But the Christian year is is also a wonderful resource for the exercise of hospitality within your specific household. Um, people love to have occasions for things. Sometimes that the same neighbor who might be skittish about coming over for dinner 
might be eager to join you for some wassail and caroling on Twelfth Night or something like that. Again, there's plenty of room for creativity. To quote Pastor Steve Wilkins, we need to show our neighbors that the gospel is as glad as it sounds and gladder yet than that. And we show it not primarily in our sermons, but in our lives. Christian hospitality provides the ideal context in which to do this. It's not easy. Right? It's rewarding, but it's also costly. Like everything else in the Christian life, hospitality requires a death to self. But like everything else in the Christian life, it's through death that we experience life. Okay. One more thought before I close. In John 12, when um, Mary of Bethany anoints the feet of Jesus, what does Judas say? He essentially says, what a waste, right? Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Having now heard the case for hospitality, I think there's a temptation in some of us um, to allow the ghost of Judas to whisper against these things. Christian hospitality is a costly endeavor. There's meal planning, invitations, purchasing food or gardening, cooking extra, setting the table, suffering all of that awkwardness, exposing our homes to hard use, Welcoming brokenness, all of that comes at a great cost. But we worship worship the host of hosts. And so we should reject even the slightest hint of a scarcity mindset. This world was designed by God to be fruitful and abundant. It's true that humans all over the world experience scarcity, but abundance and goodness and beauty and joy are are nonetheless essential features of the festal world God has given to us. In fact, it's more true to describe the world in terms of abundance. Even in a world of terrible suffering, we humans have more than we know what to do with. Our lives are abundant. We make music, we sing songs, we build homes, and we make jewelry. We dance, we hold feasts, and we read fiction. We fly to the moon, we offer gifts, and we marinate meat, and we beget children. These things are not, strictly speaking, necessary for our survival. That's the whole point. There is a divine feast at the heart of this world. Judah had no framework for the frivolity and the excess represented by a feast. What a waste. Judas was blind to the intrinsic exuberance of God's world. 
and it was his scarcity mindset that preempted the, the only proper response, which is thanksgiving, which is, which is Eucharist. You see, on account of our rebellion, we are estranged not only from God, we are estranged from our neighbor, and we're estranged from ourselves, and we're estranged from the world around us. But when bread and wine are brought into the sanctuary and placed upon the altar, we, we get to see what bread and wine truly are. What they were always meant to be. Bread and wine were always meant to be the means of joy and festivity and communion between God and man and between man and man. Everything in this festal world is redeemed and restored at the table of the Lord. When we come to see God and and our, our fellow brethren and our neighbors and the world and everything in it as they were always meant to be, we come to see the hospitality of God for what it truly is. It may, it, may just, it may look like bread and wine or beef stew or roasted vegetables or mashed potatoes or even just a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But, but it's nothing short of the redemption and restoration of everything. There is a divine feast at the heart of the world and the call is to extend this feast by way of our own tables. And this is a great and awesome privilege. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Um, We thank you, first of all, for your gracious, loving welcome, your hospitality toward us. Uh, We exist here by your invitation. Uh, And we are sustained um, at your table. And God, I, I thank you for these men. I thank you for the churches represented here. And God, I ask that you, by your spirit, um, would pour out your grace upon us, that you would empower us to live the liturgy after the liturgy um, so that we can see the world, um, so that we can see the kingdom come in our homes and churches and neighborhoods and cities. Uh, Please help us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.